Anyway, Purim is coming up this week. We'll have our first meeting on Wednesday evening at 6.30. Wednesday evening at 6.30. Probably have a little sermonette, a short explanation of what the day really means to us. And uh, we'll have some singing and some finger foods on that first night. That's Wednesday evening. And Thursday evening, again at 6.30, a formal dinner. Uh, sit-down dinner to celebrate what is really a feast, the Purim feast. And we expect God's deliverance, and He's done it historically, so He's going to do it again, and we're therefore looking forward to His deliverance pretty soon, I hope. Anyway, let's get on into the sermon for today. We left off last week at James 4. In verse 4, and I want to pick it up in that same chapter because there's a lot down below that in the book of, in the fourth chapter of James that has to do with peace and what it takes to, to cause peace because blessed are the peacemakers, those who create it, those who go out of their way to make it happen because it will never happen on its own among human beings. Uh, It has to be uh, generated. It has to be created. You have to do things that produce it, in other words. And he tells us in the first part of this chapter that it's our human nature that causes the problems that we have among ourselves. He's talking about warring in our members, not warring with guns and swords and knives, but uh, with words, with the breach of the peace, with disturbing the peace uh, because of our human nature. And then he says, we're selfish in verse 3. I'm just paraphrasing this. We don't ask with the right attitude because we're so often motivated by our human nature, which is selfish and egocentric and vain and so on. And it is that human nature that leads to conflict, that causes problems among us. Anytime you see problems between people, there's always self involved somewhere. I think all the way back to Satan's rebellion against God, and what was it about? It was about self, and it was about ego and vanity whereby he began to think that he could judge God, that he was better than God, that he could evaluate God and put God on a lower level than himself. And that's what led to that rebellion, and he got a third of the angels to begin to think the same way, that he indeed was more powerful than God and that they could take over the rulership of the universe. So we may not be quite that uh, expansive in our thinking, (laughs) but at the same time, in our own little world, the human nature that Satan brought out in the Garden of Eden is still very, very heavily entrenched within us, and we think of self first by nature. That's just the way we are. And that is what causes the conflict, is that human nature, and that's what he's explaining here. Uh, I read verse 4 where he says, he calls us adulterers and adulteresses. 
And it's not speaking here necessarily in a physical context. It's speaking of a spiritual condition. Because he goes on to explain that, the friendship of the world is enmity with God, so whoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So it's a form of spiritual adultery to get out and be a part of the world, because it is in opposition to God. And if we have its attitudes, we rub shoulders with it too much, then those attitudes, which are by nature in us, tend to come out more and more. And if we're away from that influence, then the more we can be influenced by God instead of by the human nature around us. So he makes it very pointed. If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. I think that's the last thing any one of us would want to be, would be an enemy of God, because we know he gives eternal life, he gives all blessings, he gives every good and perfect gift, and he's the ruler of the universe, and always shall be. He defeated Satan, and he is going to defeat Satan again, and bind him up and put him away. So God is going to have peace in the universe, in spite of Satan, and in spite of us. Now, we're not much of a foe by comparison to Satan, to God, or to the angels. But if our mind and heart and attitude is selfish, then there's going to be conflict. Because there is not conflict without some form of self involved by some party somewhere. That's what creates it is putting self first in some way or another. Verse 5, do you think that the scripture says in vain? Is it just talking through its hat? The spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy. Now the scripture says that in many, many places and in many, many forms. So human desire, lust perhaps, indicates illegal human desire of some kind or another, creates envy, and envy is of other people, or other people's things, or whatever. So there is an inordinate desire within us, by nature, to desire things that we should not have. And we create a problem between us and God when we give in to our nature and do those things which are contrary to him. Because that is simply and plainly and clearly idolatry. He has his way. And if we cross his way, we're putting ourselves ahead of his way. And putting ourselves in that position is putting ourselves ahead of God. So, that breaks the first and the second commandment, actually all of them, but it is idolatry. The book of Colossians tells us that, um, it, not, not envy, which word does it use? Um, well, the last commandment, um, <laughs> covetousness. So my brain must be getting old, I don't know. But covetousness is idolatry. So desiring something 
that is illegal for us becomes idolatry. And that's what happened with Satan. He desired something that was not his, God's sovereignty, God's rulership, God's way. And therefore, he committed idolatry, put himself ahead of God. And we do it in little ways, big ways sometimes, but it's a constant battle not to put ourselves ahead of every word in this book. And that's what creates strife among us. It creates division between us and God, which idolatry does. Our sins separate us. And then it creates problems among us. And that's what he's explaining. Verse 6, But he gives more grace. Wherefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So grace is there, that is, unmerited pardon. But if someone is humble, he's much, much more likely to receive God's mercy, his forgiveness, and his grace than someone who is proud and vain, egocentric, and selfish. Because love is unselfishness. God is unselfish. He wants to share his universe with everybody who will do what he wants to do and live in peace. That's what he wants to do. But when there's vanity, ego, and self in the way, that replaces humility, and God resists that. He resisted it in Satan, and he's naturally going to just simply resist it when he sees it in us. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, his way, his thinking, his rules, his laws. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, what do you resist in order to resist the devil? Well, he puts within our minds selfishness, envy, jealousy, pride, because that's what he is, and that's what he broadcasts. So when you resist those attitudes and try to have these attitudes that Matthew 5 talks about, humble, meek, uh, lowly in spirit, uh, seeking peace. Those are not things that Satan seeks. They're just the opposite. So Christ tells us these are what you are to seek. Resist the devil, which is all the works of the flesh, based on selfishness. So you submit to God's way and resist the devil's way, and he doesn't want to be around that. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Which reminds me of Jeremiah, where he says, Seek him with all your heart, and you will find him, and he will be found of you. That's the phrase in there that I really love to remember and think about. Because I can do all the seeking possible and still have difficulty if he hides from me. So he says, if you will seek me, you will find me. I will let you find me. I will help you find me, is what he's implying, because his attitude is he wants us to find him. Do you ever see kids playing hide and seek? One of them will go in the closet, and they're supposed to be hid. I think I used this the other day. They're supposed to be hid, and you're supposed to go find them, and they're supposed to be quiet so you can't. 
And then you'll hear one holler, I'm in the closet! Because he wants to be found. (laughs) Now that's God's attitude toward us. He wants us to find him. And that's what James is saying in just different words. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. He is ready to meet you halfway. He's ready to come to you if you will start toward him. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So he says, draw near to God, and then he says, how you got to go about it. Get your hands clean. Get your hearts clean. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. In other words, recognize what your nature is, what you tend to be, and be upset and frustrated with that, and be afflicted over it. Uh, We should have conflict in our mind. We are not godly completely yet. We're becoming godly, put it that way. And... Our nature is in conflict with that. It wants to go the other direction. So as long as we're human on this earth, we cannot have total peace. Can't have it. I'm not talking about with somebody else. I'm talking about you in your own heart and mind. As long as you're human, you cannot have total peace. If you think you can, you're kidding yourself. Now, you may tell yourself you're a good boy or girl and pat yourself on the back and that everything's fine, uh, but that's not reality. (laughs) We have conflict, and it's within our emotions, our minds, our hearts, our feelings, because you cannot very easily clean your hands and purify your hearts. The heart by nature is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And we are selfish by nature. I think we all know that, but it doesn't hurt us to talk about it and remind us of the fight that we have. Because if you think that you're totally at peace and you're still far from perfect, then you ought to get some conflict. There needs to be conflict. There needs to be a fight going on to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ, and that is a fight. So, he says, if you want to find peace and you want to find happiness and draw near to God, it's going to take some affliction, some mourning, and some crying. Some crying out. Because it isn't going to just catch up with you, (laughs) if you've got to make it in your own heart and mind. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. doesn't mean we shouldn't laugh, we shouldn't have a good time, we shouldn't uh, enjoy life to one degree or another as humans, but at the same time, underneath all of that, we should be very, very aware of what we lack and be working toward it. So even as we among each other might laugh and joke and kid around among ourselves and take pleasure in God's nature and the things he's made and the beauty around us, we can take pleasure in that. Uh, 
But at the same time, we have to realize that the conflict is always there. It's always there. You can be sitting enjoying something in God's creation that's beautiful, and if you're not careful, something ungodly will come through your mind even as you're trying to appreciate what God has done. That's just human nature. So we need to have our laughter turned to mourning and our joy to heaviness. Christ Emmanuel was the most balanced person who ever walked the face of the earth. And I'm sure with his disciples he laughed and made some jokes. And I look at a lot of things in nature that are so cute and can be so funny. And they'll make you laugh. I remember sitting watching a grizzly bear on a rock up in Kodiak, Alaska. And it was in the spring, and he had an itch. And boy, was he rubbing on that rock. And it was, it was, it was funny just to watch all he went through on that rough rock to try to get relief. <laughs> you know, just a simple little thing. I'm sitting there watching. And, I know God has a sense of humor. That's just one thing that pops in my mind, but there are thousands of them. So, and the Bible talks a lot about laughter. It talks about joy and dancing and singing. Uh, in Isaiah, it says that that's where we're going to go from what we've been going through now. It's going to turn, and then we're going to have that. So God is not against laughter and joy and dancing and merriment done his way. He's not against it whatsoever. But he also wants us to recognize what we lack, and that creates conflict in our own hearts, minds, and emotions. So he says, humble yourselves in the sight of the eternal, and he shall lift you up. We don't need to lift ourselves up. We need to humble ourselves before his word, before his way of life, before him as a being, and we don't have to strive to lift ourselves up or to put others down so that we can feel good about ourselves, as humans tend to do. We're always making comparisons. I mean, you first meet somebody. What do you start doing? You're analyzing immediately who they are, what they are. You're asking questions because you want to know about them. And you're trying to figure out whether a good guy or a bad guy or how good or how bad and whether it's somebody you would like to see again or never see again or whatever, there's an analysis that starts in our minds immediately. You had me at hello, you know, or first smile or, or maybe it was a scowl and you never went beyond that. But you see somebody or you speak to somebody and that analysis is just as natural as breathing. The mind begins to work. There, there we need to be so very, very careful, as we'll see here in just a moment. But we're not to be figuring out in our mind whether this is a person who's better than me or worse than me we're all worse than God. That's just where it needs to stop. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't, to some, to some degree, analyze 
what you're seeing, what you're hearing, and whether it's good or bad, it's just that you can't become judgmental about it. You can't start raising yourself up or lowering yourself down for their sake, one way or the other. Because our comparison is always with God, and therefore we need to be humble and not lift ourselves in our attitude or mind or thinking above someone else. They're God's children too, every last one of them. So we, we can analyze and see if this is somebody I would like to be around or get to know better or whatever, but don't make that judgment in your mind. And that is a difficult one because we would like to think of ourselves as a somewhere, let's say on a scale of one to ten, you'd like to think yourself as above a five, I think, uh, one way or another. You might not think you're a ten, but yeah, you're better than average, aren't you? You'd like to think you are. Well, we're all below average when it comes to comparison to God. We just are. But if you meet somebody by their looks, by their attitude, whatever, you may not calculate it. This is a six, a seven, eight, a nine, or a ten I'm talking to, or a four. But the comparisons are being made whether you're using a number system or not. And we need to stop short of condemning or judging or putting them lower. That is when we begin to put our, think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. So we humble ourselves in the sight of God. And if he wants to lift us up, let him do it. You see, that caused an awful lot of animosity in worldwide years ago because somebody wanted to be a deacon or somebody wanted to be an elder, they wanted to be a minister, or they just wanted to be told that they were wonderful or whatever it was they wanted. It created a lot of conflict. It caused people who were friends to become enemies because one got ordained and the other one didn't. So we've been playing the one-upmanship just like a corporate ladder. Just as carnal, just as selfish as the corporate ladder. No wonder God blew us apart because of those comparisons we made. And we weren't truly humble because we got upset when somebody else might have appeared to be rewarded and we weren't. And we knew that we deserved it more than they did, of course. That went on all over the church, all over the world. Every congregation it happened. No, let's not even be concerned about those things. Just be concerned about helping, serving, giving, loving. Humble yourselves in the sight of the eternal. Let him lift you. If he wants to raise you up, let him do it. Don't try to get there yourself. What does he tell us? You go into a feast... Take the lowest chair in the room. That ought to be our attitude. Lowest chair in the room. And then if somebody wants you to come up to the sit at the front table, let them bid you up there. Be thankful just to be there. Maybe when the first resurrection occurs and we all rise to meet Christ in the air, 144,000 people, 
Maybe it should be like musical chairs. Everybody scrambling for the last seat. The 144,000th seat. Now God would love that if we all had that humble an attitude and were seeking a higher position. Let God reward. He knows how much treasure you have in heaven. He knows where you want, where he wants you to be. And I really doubt in his mind that if you're the first one out of the grave and somebody else is the 144,000th one, they're all the bride of Christ. I don't think it's going to matter which chair you're in. He'll put us where he wants us. So it won't matter. It's a human thing down here that's the problem. We want preeminence in one way or another. It's just our nature. So he's telling us, be humble. Take the lower seat. Have that attitude about you so that you're not pushing, pushing. You know, we had our boot polishers and our behind kissers and whatever else you want to call it. And people trying to get themselves promoted. Nah. This is just the opposite. Just just humble yourself. Don't worry about it. God wants you somewhere, he'll put you there. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. You're the one that can condemn, convict, put somebody aside. Now, he's talking here about war and peace. That's what this whole chapter is about. So he's explaining to us how to make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see God. Now, if there's war going on, or fighting, or attitudes, or whatever there might be, there is selfishness involved in one way or another, by one party or the other, or both. You won't have conflict as long as everybody is humble and meek and willing to put the other ahead of himself. It won't happen. The Father and the Son never fight. Never. Because they are both so humble, so meek, so willing to put the other ahead of themselves, that they just don't fight. They have no selfishness, no envy, no lust, no vanity, no ego. And without that, there's nothing to fight about. There's just nothing. But when we start start speaking evil one of another, we're not humbling ourselves before the eternal. He says, humble yourself and he'll lift you up. And he immediately then says, don't speak evil of each other. Just don't ever do it. If you want to have peace. Because he says, if you're doing it, boil it down. And he does right here, in verse 12. He says, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you that judges another? 
What he's literally saying is if you speak evil of your brother, of anyone, you are speaking evil of God. That's his son. That's his family. He's the one that made the rules. He's the one that said don't be full of envy, vanity, jealousy, and selfishness, but to humble yourself. And if you're humble, you won't speak evil one of another. And if you do, you're breaking the first commandment. It is idolatry to speak evil of each other. Because it's putting your opinion of somebody ahead of God's opinion of them. We can have peace right here if we'll just follow what he's, James is saying. We can have peace among ourselves without conflict if we have these attitudes. Now he tells us in Haggai, when the gathering comes, in this place I will make peace. He is only going to call those who are willing to humble themselves before him, to listen to what they're told by the teachers he's going to send them, do what they're told, and have this, this attitude, and there will be peace. He's going to do that. Now, you and I have the opportunity to be working on that ahead of time because there are a lot of people coming here who are going to be expecting peace. They've been in turmoil out there in the world. They've been in turmoil out there in the church. And God is going to do signs and wonders, miracles, to cause them to come to where he is working. And when they come, they're going to be seeking peace, security. That's what they're going to want. They will have had a lot of turbulence and trouble and conflict, and they're going to want peace. And I hope that you and I can show them that, that we can be an example of that, that there won't be conflict, there won't be people speaking down about each other, that they will repent of that and get over that and dwell together in peace. That has to happen, or any one of us will not be included. If we're not willing to do the things that create peace, God will weed us out. Rebels against him, rebels against his way, rebels against his people, those who speak evil of each other, are going to go away. Those who are willing to humble themselves and be meek will stay. That's just what it's going to come down to. If you judge, if you speak evil of your brother, these, this is a sequence here. It's something that builds as it goes. Let's notice that. Don't you humble yourself. Don't speak evil of one another because that is judgment of that person, and we are not to be condemning or judging each other, okay? So there's the second level. Then it ratchets up another one. You're also speaking evil of the law. 
So if you speak evil of a person, you're judging that person, and you're also putting God's law down. That's the third level. And if you judge the law, you're not a a doer, but a judge of the law, and you're also then, on the next level, a judge of God, the lawmaker. This is scary stuff. Who are you to speak evil or judge anyone? But we just pass it off. Oh, well, we're going to go on about life, and we're going to go to this city, and we're going to buy and sell and get gain. God says, wait a minute. You don't know what's going to come. You could die before tomorrow. You don't know what you're going to do. For that you ought to say, if the eternal will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. So what is boasting? It's some kind of self. Some kind of selfishness. Boasting doesn't have to be done about what you did or how smart you are or how wealthy you are or how intelligent you are or how God fearing you are, how much you pray, or anything else that you boast about. Boasting is simply building yourself up in your own mind. You boast to yourself about yourself more than you boast to somebody else about you, generally. But no, he says, humble yourselves. Otherwise, you start a process, when you open your mouth, and say something evil about somebody else, you start a process that leads to judgment, condemnation, condemnation of God's law, and condemnation of God, and it puts you right in the position Satan the devil is in, who did those things to God. How about it? We can talk about these things till the cows come home, but we've got to do something about it. We've got to do something about it. It's so easy to criticize somebody. So easy to say, well, that's wrong, or that attitude's wrong, or that person's wrong. It's just the easiest thing in the world for us to do that. And it's one of the hardest things in the world not to do that. So we have work to do. Every last one of us in that area, and we need to understand that it ultimately is idolatry and selfishness that causes us to do it. It isn't the other person that's the problem, then. It's you. Now, they may be evil. They may be doing something evil. But God's their judge. I'm not, and you're not. God's their judge. So why do we put them down? Why do we do that? It's our human, carnal nature to do so. That's why we do it. I don't know that you need to sit and think it all through and make it too complicated. (laughs) There's some element of human, selfish nature there when that happens. And it needs to be corrected and put the way God wants things. Well, I'm spending a lot of time in James 4, but 
really, he's telling us here how to make peace. And what happens when we start the process of disturbing the peace, and then it goes all the way up to God and condemns him. Because this is his creation. You and I are his creation. If he's called us out of the world already, we're his children. And he defends his children. And since he has justified them and has made them candidates for salvation, he is very jealous of them. Very jealous of them. In a godly type jealousy. Very deeply concerned about them. And he doesn't like it when one of us that he's working with, he's trying to make us into his image, and he's spending a lot of time with us. He counts our hair. He spends a lot of time with you. He really does. He has his eye on you continually. And he is doing his level best to bring you into his kingdom. And if he hears somebody criticizing you, he does not like that. He hates that. It is ultimately idolatry, as James says. That's how serious it is for us to criticize one another. God takes it personally. That's my child. I'm working with that one. Leave him alone. I'll take care of it. It's not your concern. You take care of you. I'll take care of him and you both. We should be building each other up. You see, it's a sin of commission not to criticize each other. It's a sin of omission not to build each other up. We're omitting to do that. You can't just be neutral. We're here for iron to sharpen iron and to help lift each other to be more godly. So that's a sin of omission when we fail to do that. We need to encourage people. We need to compliment people. We need to thank people to be in a thankful attitude. If I'm in a thankful attitude toward you or you toward me or any of us toward each other, thankful that God called that person is working with them and has set them aside for salvation in this wretched world, we ought to be doing everything we can the way God is doing it because he's trying to build each of us up to be what we ought to be. And if that's what he's doing, then we ought to be doing that with each other. That's our job. That's our purpose. To help, to build up, to strengthen, to empower each other to do better, rather than criticizing each other for not doing better. Now this has been said thousands of times, and I've said it myself probably hundreds or thousands of times, but it's the truest thing we can talk about. <laughs> it just is. That we're here to help and strengthen one another instead of pull each other down. And if we could get that lesson, 
then we could be better candidates for the kingdom of God. Now, I said I was going to deal with the thought uh, at the end of the sermon last week of what does, how does God deal with his enemies? I introduced that by going to Zechariah 14. And those who will not submit to God's way will have no rain, they'll have drought and famine, and they will die unless they decide to come up to keep the feast. They decide to obey and serve God. They're going to die. Now there's your first clue on how God deals with his enemies. Because God is going to have peace in the universe. He's tired of Satan. He's tired of his demons. He's tired of human nature. I mean, he's been looking down here for 6,000 years at Sodom and Gomorrah. From almost day one. It must get awful tiresome. And you know what? The thought ran through my mind a few minutes ago and then I went away from it. But Satan the devil goes before God's throne every day and criticizes you and me by name. And he makes some true accusations about us and he makes some false accusations about us. But he goes before God's throne every day and screams at him about your faults and mine. Every day. You know what? I bet God gets really tired of that. He's called out many and he's choosing few from that. And he's sorting all that out. At the same time, Satan is trying to turn him against every last one of us. So, he has that clamor in his ear. He's going to stop it. He's putting up with it for a certain amount of time, and then he's going to stop it forever. And he puts up with it, with you and me, criticizing each other, doing Satan's work, That's Satan's work. It's not God's work when we criticize one another. That's Satan's work. Your father, the devil, is who you're serving when you criticize each other. Sometimes we call each other Satan. Now, the one that said it is the one that's acting like Satan. It's the criticizer, not the criticized, who is Satan and serving Satan. Because the criticism itself is contrary to James 4 and the rest of the Bible. And God gets tired of hearing criticism of each other. He gets tired of hearing it from the devil himself. And we should not be playing in the devil's workshop. Can we understand how serious this is? How important it is? I don't expect it to be completely overcome at the end of this sermon. But I expect us all to be working on it. It, It's a lifelong battle. So you and I are not going to walk out of this room today and never criticize each other or someone else again. It's not going to happen that way. We'll still catch ourselves. But let's be aware and let's do catch ourselves and let's do work on stopping it so that we can have a truly peaceful group of people here 
who can set an example for those who will soon be coming, and they can say, ah, peace at last. Now, it'll not be complete peace. He does say he'll bring peace. But as long as we're human, there'll still be this conflict in here of our own human nature and selfishness that we struggle against. That'll always be there until we're transformed. But that doesn't mean we need to accept it and just live with it and say, well, that's just the way I am. Because I've seen people with that attitude and an awful lot of Protestants with it. And they sing that song, a lot of them. Just as I am, Lord, just as I am. Not you, you're, you're not right, but just as I am. I remember one lady in a church years ago who had a real weight problem. Struggled with it. Struggled with it. She'd fought it and fought it and tried everything you can name to try to lose weight, and she was still three, three and a half. And she finally says, well, God's just going to have to take me like I am. Well, God doesn't want you like you am. He wants us all to grow and overcome. And he doesn't want us to be self-righteous. You know, that's one we get that way about. A lot of people, because of background, because of genes, because of training as they grew up, struggle with weight. Most of this nation does. And you see somebody that couldn't gain weight if they ate all day, every day, all day, every day. But boy, do they get self-righteous about somebody who's fat. They can't handle it that somebody else is fat and they're skinny. Self-righteous clear up to here. It gets old. Somebody who's struggling with something and you just, yeah, you're just fat. You'll always be fat. Why aren't you skinny like me? I'm righteous, you're not. Baloney. Self-righteous is the worst kind of unrighteousness that there is. But we give in to it so easily. That's just one example. There's a 411 more. <laughs> that one just came to mind because of the lady who said, take me as I am. I understood, though, her frustration. You know what I mean? I need to lose some more weight. It's frustrating trying to do it. It's, I struggle with it. And she struggled even more than I do. Because she had a worse problem with it than I did. But who am I to condemn her? Who am I to put her down? Who am I to look down upon her? Because she has a problem that might be a little worse than a problem I have in that particular case. No. I needed to pray for her. I needed to encourage her. I needed to set an example for her. And I needed to keep my mouth shut about her and not talk about how fat she was to anybody else. You know what I mean? She's God's child. I think she's still alive. I remember which congregation it was in. And I hope she's making some progress. But, you know, somebody's struggling. We don't need to criticize them. They can't help it their hair's falling out. They can't help it they're going blind. They can't help it their ears don't work anymore. They can't help it they're not 20 years old anymore. They can't help it they still got human nature. 
And they're struggling with it. And if we criticize them, then it just makes them feel all the worse and makes it harder for them to overcome because not only they recognize they have problems, but you're laying more of it on top of them that they have problems. No, encourage, strengthen, help them. Don't criticize them, whatever the problem might be. Everybody has walked different miles and different moccasins. You know, there are, there are an awful lot of people that have attitudes because of the way their parents treated them. They were abused as children in one form or another, one way or another. They were picked on as kids over their ears being too big or a lazy eye or whatever. And they're a product of an awful lot of experiences. And you don't know what those are. You just look at what's there and think, well, they shouldn't be that way. Why do they do that? Well, they do that because that's the way they were trained or untrained, because of the way they were treated. So they have certain attitudes. And they have to work on them. Now, they've had those problems for anywhere from 15 to 85 years, you know. And so it's real easy for us to be glib and criticize them for what they've been struggling with since they were maybe a child. Real easy for us to pick on. But we haven't walked a hundred miles in their moccasins either. So have some mercy, some forgiveness, some grace. Give them an opportunity. Give them love. Give them help. Give them encouragement. That's what you can't omit. That's what you have to do in a positive way to help them. You know, some problems are hard to see. You might be struggling with something in your head that nobody else can see. Nobody else knows it there. But if you're crippled, or you're fat, or your IQ is somewhere way below 100, or you got ADD or DDT or whatever else, some of those things are pretty easy to see. And it's pretty easy to put somebody down in their own mind. Brethren, we can't go there. We've got to be helping them. We've got to be seeing the good in them. It's easy to see or think you see evil. It's much harder to see and be thankful for the good. Because there's nobody here that's all good. Is there? I don't mean to be presumptuous. Maybe raise your hand if you are. There's nobody here that's all evil either. Well, maybe that's a little questionable. No, no, it's not. Nobody's all evil. You have the Spirit of God, and you're not all evil. Your mind by nature is deceitful and desperately wicked, which is pretty bad. But by the help of God, we can be above evil and working toward less evil and more good. 
So bottom line, there's nobody here that's all bad and all good. So God tells us not to look at the evil, but to look at the good. That's what Philippians 4.8 is all about, and nobody seems to give a rip. Okay? Look for the good, not the bad. Compliment the good. Be thankful for the good. Minimize the bad. That's what we have to do. Then we are not sinning by commission, and we're helping and serving by not omitting to do that, but by pushing it and doing it, which is just the opposite of the way we like to think. Am I going to make it through James 4 today? Let's go to Matthew 8. It's okay. This is the crux of becoming peacemakers. James just absolutely nails it there in chapter 4. Uh, so, we probably couldn't spend too much time on it. Matthew 8, verse 5. And when Jesus, or Emmanuel, was entered into Capernaum, there came to him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Emmanuel said to him, I will come and heal him. Christ was willing to go, give up whatever he was doing, and go to the centurion's house to heal him. But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Now there's a humble meek attitude. I, I, you should not come under my house because I'm lower than you. But speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. He says, I've heard of what you've done. I know you can heal. And I know if you say it, it's going to happen. For I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. But he's used to giving orders and having them obeyed, one way or the other. When Emmanuel heard it, he marveled. He marveled. And said to them that followed, Truly, I say to you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in the entirety of all Israel. Here was this Gentile man who had utter and complete trust, belief, that whatever God said would happen. And that is rare, to have that kind of humility. And I say to you, that many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That have the same kind of attitude the centurion did. He's making this comparison. Here's a man who accepts my way, accepts my word, accepts me, and believes me without question... There will be people like that in the kingdom of God. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. 
There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what Christ is pointing out here is if we believe him, if we trust him, we walk in faith and believe in his salvation, we're going to be there. But people who don't believe, and there are some of those, are going to go into the lake of fire and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here, you have, in a nutshell, what James explained in that chapter. If we will humble ourselves and believe God, everything's going to work out fine. But if we do not humble ourselves, if we're not meek, if we judge one another and criticize one another and disturb the peace of others... We will not be allowed to be in the kingdom of God and disturb the peace there. God is going to have peace throughout the universe. And he's called you and me right now to become examples of that. That's what we're here for, is to be examples of how his kingdom will be. Now, we fall very short of it, we understand, but we don't get discouraged over that. We just realize that it is a process that we work through to become more like he is and to have that humble, meek, selfish, selfless attitude that he has. But if we don't achieve that, if we continue to criticize and put down and disturb the peace, he will not have us in his kingdom. Satan's not going to be there. A third of the angels are not going to be there. And the children of the kingdom that he's called, he's talking about the children of the kingdom here. Those whom he's called. Not the world in general, but children of the kingdom. Some won't make it because they are not willing to live in peace. And he's promised us, has he not? Peace. No more tears, no more pain, no more death. Nothing to upset us and encroach upon our security and good feeling and well-being. That is a promise that he will keep intact. And anyone who will not bow to that and follow that will not be there. They'll go into the lake of fire. There's only two ways. You'll either be in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. You're not going to be in the kingdom whining and crabbing and criticizing man or God or any of his children. He will not tolerate it. He's had enough of Satan, and he's had enough of us acting like Satan. He's going to be done with it. That's probably a good place to stop. A little cool in here, and, and uh, that's an awful lot for us to be thinking about and working on right there without continuing further. So, see you at Purim and then next week, God willing.